not a knotless thread and a haphazard collection of meaningless and disconnected events. In other words, there's a theory of history, especially biblical history, as Brother Larry has ably and convincingly demonstrated this week. There is a consummation, a finality. The Christadelphian regards himself and all life as being on the way to a goal. In other words, there's an end result to the unfolding of history. It isn't just unwinding in a haphazard way. Now, um, I want to spend some time on page 15 uh, of the chart. Um, I wasn't going to touch on this, but something has cropped up which tells me perhaps it would be wise to, to deal with it. In this famous prophecy of the 70 weeks, there were four parts to it. There was the seven weeks at the start, then there was that was to be followed by a period of 62 weeks, and the last week was to be bisected with a half a week there and a half a week there. Now, on the day for the year principle, of course, this comes out to 49 years for the first segment, 434 years for the second segment, and three and a half years for each of the, of the two halves of the last week, making a total of seven years. Now, Messiah was cut off in the middle of the last week, as we demonstrated the other day. So that meant that there was a half a week or three and a half years left sort of hanging. Now, here's what happened. When the Reformation took place, and Luther and Calvin and these other reformers came along, they branded the papacy as the man of sin, the highlight of the book of Revelation. They pinned it right on him. And as I told you, he had a triple crown with the word mystery on it. Well, the first thing he did was buy, as I told you, buy a new hat with, with the word mystery off of it. But the second thing he did was this. He said, we've got to promote what they called a counter-reformation. In other words, we've got to develop a system of Bible explanation. You see, by this time, the art of printing had been invented in 1450. Now we're talking 1515. So the, the first book they printed was the Bible in the various languages. They printed it in German. They printed it in English. They printed it in French. They printed it in Dutch. So that the Bible by this time had, had wide dissemination through Europe. And the common people now were able to read it, and these reformers were able to explain it to the people. So the papacy decided that in addition to removing the word mystery from his hat, he would appoint the best brains he had to develop a system of biblical explanation which would get him off the hook. And the hook was that he was the man of sin. Now, the two men he appointed were Cardinal, Cardinal Bellarmine, who was a very, very brilliant scholar, and another priest by the name of Rabira. And they developed what became known as the Futurist Theory. In other words, there were three theories about the book of Revelation. There was the Preterist Theory, which said the whole thing was fulfilled um, before and during A.D. 70, uh, the, 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 uh, when Jerusalem and the Romans came in and so forth, and pagan Rome uh, did in the nation of Israel. That was the Preterist Theory. The historical theory is the theory that Larry has been talking about all this week, and so have I, which we believe to be the correct one. 
And then the Catholics developed what's, what became known as the Futurist Theory, which said that the whole book of Revelation was to be fulfilled in three and a half literal years at the end. And the, the three, and wh- where they developed it was, they said this three and a half year period, which, which uh, was in the 70 week prophecy, and which was not fulfilled because Christ was crucified in the middle of the week, was put, you might say, by God in a deep freeze to be brought out at the very end and all these wonderful things were to be fulfilled in the last three and a half year period. Now this futurist theory, of course, the reformers like Luther and Calvin, Zwingli, Huss, um, Menon and so forth, all dismissed as a complete failure um, and had no substance to it at all. Well, about 1885, um, along in there, a fellow came along, 1881, by Sir Robert Anderson in England. And he became enamored with this futurist theory and wrote a book called The Coming Prince. And this book had a great impact on a, a lot of uh, Protestant and Catholic uh, people. And he developed further the futurist theory. He picked up the futurist theory and developed it further. The futurist theory had been set down by Bellarmine and Rabira and disseminated throughout Europe. But one of the places that they were very insistent that it go in was in footnotes in the Douay version. Now, the, the King James Version was printed in 1611. About five years later, remember Luther flourished in 1516, so now we're talking about a hundred years later. Uh, the Douay Version was, was printed in Douay, France, in English. It was a translation by the Catholics. And the footnotes completely explained all the futurist theory as it went along in the book of Revelation. Now, um, the Christadelphians paid no attention to the, to the futurist theory at all. They dismissed it as a, as, a, as a Catholic theory and not worthy hardly of even noticing until about ten or so years ago that Brother A.D. Norris, and I'm going to name him, I'm not going to muck around here, Brother A.D. Norris wrote a book, um, and so did Brother Harry Whitaker, explaining the apocalypse. Brother Whitaker's book was called the Apocalypse, a Biblical Approach. Uh, I, uh, that in, implies to the likes of me that Dr. Thomas was a non-biblical approach, I guess. I don't understand. That very word is, is a little bit of a barb, I think. The Apocalypse, a Biblical Approach. Apparently everybody else were non-biblical. And Brother Norris's book was called The Apocalypse for Every Man. Now these two books weren't exactly the same, but they leaned uh, in the direction of the futurist theory that in three and a half literal years yet to come um, all these uh, various things would happen there would be a man arise uh, and of course Hal Lindsey was another promoter of the futurist theory and is a promoter of it and the whole Protestant system have climbed on to this futurist theory that what's going to happen is that there's going to be an antichrist come He's going to be in league with the devil. He and the devil are going to be in Jerusalem shaking hands with each other. And this uh, Antichrist guy who 
is an agent of the devil, is going to perform miracles, he's going to rebuild the temple, he's going to make a covenant with the Jews, he's going to issue edicts around the world, and for three and a half literal years, this, uh, this power who's now born already, he's, he's in the earth somewhere, and nobody knows who he is yet, because the devil hasn't promoted him to, to uh, sainthood to install him in the city of Jerusalem. All these marvelous things are going to happen in three and a half years. Well, um, uh, as I say, Hal Lindsey and, uh, and has written these books and he's promoting it. The Protestants have gotten on it. The whole theory of the rapture, uh, the, the um, Protestants are going to be all taken up to heaven during this three and a half year tumult and spared the tribulation. Then, I, don't, I forget whether they're going to come back down or whether the earth's going to be burned up. I, I, I can't even remember what it's all about. But anyway... Um, in my view, the futurist theory is, is a false theory. Not only false, but dangerous. Because if, if any of you subscribe to the Christadelphian magazine, you will read in the, in the uh, Ecclesial News that uh, almost, not so much now, but in the last ten years, that we are sorry to report that um, twelve of our members have joined the Evangelical Church next month. We are sorry to report that we have lost brother and sister X, Y, and Z, and they have gone down and joined the evangelical church. Well, this is something new for Christadelphians, brothers and sisters. As long as the Christadelphians believe that the harlot of Revelation was the Roman Catholic system, the great false apostasy, and her daughters were the Protestants, and the whole system was built on the serpent's lie, namely the immortality of the soul, nobody ever left and joined another church. They might quit and go out in the world, but they didn't go down the street and join another church because they, they knew that that was apostate. But now when all these people are called good living Christians and, and uh, beautiful Christian people and committed Christians, and that um, Brother Whittaker sat in my living room and told me that the Catholic Church was never mentioned in the Bible. Uh, you see, so as long as... as um, as these people are, are taught that the Catholic Church is not mentioned in the Bible and so forth, and that these people are full of love and peace down there, of course they leave and go down there. And, and um, many dozens have left. So, in my view, the, the um, futurist theory, which was developed by the Roman Catholic Church, to get off the hook of the facts... And, and it would, it's a strange turn of events. The Christadelphians are now picking up the futurist theory that Sir Robert Anderson wrote in 1881 and, and billing it as some new deal. I can't figure this thing out. I really can't. It has me baffled. But anyway, uh, I want to uh, tell you where that last week is. Open your Bibles at the ninth chapter of Daniel for a minute. I'm sorry you have to name names, but I'm, I asked a couple of brethren, you think I should name names? And they said, yeah, I think you should, because if I just talk in generalities, nobody really knows what I'm talking about. So I, I feel that if a brother writes a book and distributes it from Dan to Beersheba, then I can comment on it in a place like this with impunity. Now, in the ninth chapter of Daniel, the prophecy starts, as you know, at verse 24. Now, 
he says in verse 27, He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. Now, he shall, the, the, the pith of the thing is that he shall confirm the covenant with many. And in my view, the covenant that was to be confirmed is none other than the Abrahamic covenant. You see, until the death of Christ and the shedding of his blood, the covenant was really, you might say, only in the offer form. It wasn't really ratified and confirmed until the death of Christ, as the Apostle Paul goes into some length in Galatians chapter 3 to explain. So, he, he came to confirm the covenant made by God unto the fathers, as he, as he says in Romans 15 and 8. Now, here's the three and a half year period, in, in my understanding of it at least. The first, up until the, the time that Christ was baptized, until he was crucified, was a period of three and a half years. And that we'll call the ministry of Jesus. There it is for you people there. When Christ was baptized, the apostles went forth to preach. Now, a special commission was given to the apostle Peter. He was the one who saw the vision of what? What, what did he see the vision of? Yeah, he saw the vision of this sheep coming down from heaven with all these unclean, and he was told to arise, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, not me, I've never eaten anything that's unclean. And, G and the, the voice from heaven said, What God has cleansed, call thou not common. Now, right after that, there was the first Gentile convert, namely Cornelius. And, and the way was open for the Gentiles to be brought into the Abrahamic covenant. See, as I told you, the only people that are going to get in the kingdom of God are the seed of Abraham. There's nobody else going to be there. So unless provision is made for Gentiles to become adopted into and engrafted into the covenant, they have no hope and are without God in the world. So the covenant was confirmed not only for the Jews who heard Jesus, like, like Peter and James and John and the other apostles, but now in this, last, in this period here um, of the 70 weeks, the Gentiles were brought in by means of Cornelius being the first Gentile to be brought in. Now, let, let me give you my test. Everybody look at Ephesians chapter 3 for a minute. If you want to test somebody and find out if they understand the call of the Gentiles and the, and the whole business of the Abrahamic covenant and the fact that unless you are part of it, you have no hope and are without God in the world... The, 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 the key verse is in chapter 3 of Ephesians, of verse 6. If, ever, if you haven't got this underlined with a great big ring around it and stars and, and um, red ink and everything else, get it. Because, let's have a look. There was a mystery that was hidden up until this time. Uh, a mystery is something that's hidden that isn't revealed fully. So now he says, in other ages, this hidden thing was, was not known. But in verse 5 he says, It is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. 
Now, what is it that's revealed? What is the mystery that nobody knew about and now is revealed? Well, here's what the mystery was. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. Now, the heirs are the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant and of the same body as the, as the Jewish people were prior to this and partakers of his promise. See, there's about five parts here. Partakers of his promise, which is the covenant of promise made to Abraham. Now, how do you get into that thing? It's in Christ. If ye are Christ, or in Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise, and being an heir, you are an heir, an heir of eternal salvation. And the last phrase is very important, by the gospel. That's why when we talk about the gospel being the, the power of God unto salvation, and the gospel was preached to Abraham, see, this is what Brother Dunaway used to... This isn't prophecy, I, I'm on something, but maybe it's important. See, Brother Dunaway used to thunder away down at um, Arkansas, and here's what he did. He says, look, everybody turn to the first um, chapter of Romans. So everybody would turn, and they'd look it up, and you know what he was like. He'd be up there, and he'd be almost jumping up and down to pound it into the people's head. So he'd have them look at verse 16, and he'd say, now look, you've got to understand what this thing's all about, folks. And his theory was, correctly, that if you had an understanding of the thing, it would stay with you. And you'd be able to cope with all the peer pressure and everything else that comes along. So he'd, he'd get them to turn to verse 16 of Romans 1. He'd say, now look, um, the apostle says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, whatever that is, we don't know yet, he'd say, of Christ for or because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes it. So you had to have the, the gospel, whatever it is, we don't know what it is yet, but whatever it is, it has the power of God unto salvation if you believe it. That would be his number one point. Of course, he'd, he'd pound that into them. All right, then he's saying, all right, now I'll turn over to the book of Galatians. So they all turn over to the book of Galatians. He fixed their attention on... on um, Chapter 3, and he would say, All right, now, everybody in the audience, you remember this, Charles. Uh, everybody in the audience got chapter uh, 3 of Galatians. And they all, yeah, we have it. Well, and everybody look at verse 8. And he'd read it and he'd say, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, and then an epitome or a summary of the gospel is, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Now, it didn't say in thy seed shall all nations be blessed here. It does say that too. But here it says, and of course in, in um, um, the 12th of Genesis is where he's quoting from, it says, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So unless a man is in Abraham and becomes part of the seed by engrafting and adoption, he has no partner lot in the promise at all. Now, these are the things that I think uh, we've gotten away from, brothers and sisters. Uh, it's all right, you know, talking about some of these other matters of, of behavior and psychological um, um, foibles and, and, and these things that um, people talk about. 
But in my opinion, it's time we got back to the basics and get people to understand what the plan of God is and how it's put together. Or we're going to, we're going to evaporate as a Christadelphian community. The call of the Gentiles is, is how we, as Gentiles, we are the seed of Abraham by nature. We have to be adopted and engrafted into the seed of Abraham in order to be a partaker of the covenant and the promise which was there. So the last, the ministry of Peter was to, to introduce into the whole world that the Gentiles now had a chance. Jesus didn't preach to the Gentiles. What did he say? I am come washing for the house of Israel. He wasn't up in, in Athens and Rome. He was in Judea where the Jews lived. Now the way is open for the Gentiles. And that's why my dad used to say, the Bible is a Jewish book. And whether you're anti-Semitic or anything else, it's still the truth. The Bible is a Jewish book. Unless we understand that we have to become spiritual Israel and part of that seed, then we don't understand the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. Now, um, I don't know whether we're losing this thing or what, brothers and sisters, but I don't hear this too much anymore. I go to Bible schools and I sit there and uh, I, I'm waiting to hear... My, my father had a, a theory. And the theory was, if what you have to say can be said in the United Church, that's the big Protestant Church of Canada, or the, I guess down here would be the Episcopal Church or the Disciples of Christ or United Brethren or something like that. If what you have to say would be quite acceptable there or in the Rotary Club, I don't want to hear it. And we run a gathering. There'd be two or three speakers and uh, one of them would give a, a talk on uh, psychological behavior or, or something like this. And my dad would go up to him after and say, Hey, come here, brother. I want to talk to you. And the brother said, What do you want to talk to me about? He said, Well, you know, you just gave us a talk for about uh, an hour. Do you know that would be quite acceptable in that big united church across the street? And the brother would say, Well, yeah, I guess it would be. And my father said, I don't want to hear it. I haven't got time to hear that stuff. I want to hear what the Bible has to say about salvation and what the doctrines which pertain thereto teach. So maybe that's a rule of thumb. And maybe some of us should be a little bit more vocal when uh, we hear what I call motherhood being taught. Well, enough of that. Um, we're talking about time periods which flow from the various parts of the image. I want to just briefly comment on this. Larry has spent a whole week on this, and I want to tell you, and I, I'm backing him, what he had today, 100%. Uh, I had these in my notes, and, and we're not conflicting. We're, I just want to reinforce what Larry had to say. Um, the book of Revelation uh, is really... I know that I've got it down here. Uh, where's my notes? Yeah, I have on the bottom of page 15. Uh, is a divine historical parable. In other words, it's set down in parabolic or symbolic language to illustrate the history of, of the, the true believers and the apostasy during the period from the, uh, the, the time the apocalypse was given, which was 1896, down to the second coming of Christ 
and beyond. In other words, it's 19 years, I've got it here, 19 years in symbol of the history of two cities. The two cities are Rome, both pagan and papal, and Jerusalem, which is symbolic of the true bride of Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. It, in my opinion, anyway, it's dangerous to tell the Christadelphians that the book of Revelation is about three and a half years, it hasn't even happened yet, where somebody's going to arise and he's going to have people laying in the streets for three and a half days and, and there's going to be witnesses and this and that and the other thing, all going to be compressed into, into, into three and a half years. And I'll tell you why. The book of Revelation has been a tremendous comfort not only to this generation, because we can see the power of the papacy and, and what's happening, but all true believers, all down through, when Constantine was elevated and, and, and uh, introduced the state religion and so-called Christianity, all these things were signs which were in the book of Revelation, which gave comfort to true believers for the last 2,000 years. Are we the only ones who are supposed to benefit because uh, somebody wrote a book five years ago and suddenly for the first time in the world's history the book of Revelation has opened up to us? I don't think that's the way it, the Almighty works at all. I think He gave the book of Revelation as a, as a divine historical parable for all believers in all ages. And certainly, if you read any history at all, you'll know that that has been the case. Now, turn over to page... 18. If I, have, I got uh, away from myself there for 10 minutes, but I, uh, I feel that uh, sometimes these things have to be said. And um, I guess I'm the guy that's going to have to say them sometimes anyway. Anyway, we're still talking about Nebuchadnezzar's image and time periods which flow from the various parts. Now, in Daniel, will this refer, get it on your lap, I'm not even going to take time to read it because I think you're all familiar with it. But in the 12th chapter of Daniel, as you know, there are two additional time periods given. The first one is in verse 11, a period of 1,290 days. And on the day for the year principle, that would be 1,290 years. And in verse um, uh, 13, the very last verse, but go thy way, uh, uh, pardon me, the 12th, blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the 1335 days. And Daniel says that at the end of that term, uh, he would stand in his lot, which I conceive to be the lot of his inheritance at the end of that time. Now, we're going to have to do some quick mathematics here. Um, and uh, we, we have it on page 18, uh, I think, reasonably well laid out there, but I'll just go over it quickly with you. Uh, huh. You see, when I skipped a few pages, I, 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 uh, I cut out something that I should have covered, and that is that, and I'll, I'll cover it uh, maybe still, that the grand period of 2,520 years was bisected into two halves, each half being 1,260 years and uh, days, or, and on the day for the year principle, 1,260 years. Now, uh, Grant and Guinness saw that there were 30 extra years added on top of the 1,260. Larry was talking about the 1,260 this morning. Uh, if you subtract 1,260 from 1,290, you get a period of 30. 
he also saw that the 1335 was 45 more additional years. Now, he was writing in 1885, and he, and he and, and the early expositors, like Dr. Thomas, believed that the additional time periods were within the framework of the 2,520 years. In other words, they were within that period. It wasn't until, really, 1917, when we saw that the 2,520 years were accomplished, that it became evident that the, the additional time periods were to be added on to the 2,520 years and were not to be confined within the framework of the 2,520 years. So biblical expositors began to, to uh, look critically at the point. And the first one they added on to 1917, which was the end of the 2,520 years from the receipt of the image, was, of course, this period of 30 years. Now, in 1943, Brother Alan Laird in Ontario wrote an article in The Advocate, which was reproduced here a year or two ago, in which he predicted that 1947 would see a very, very spectacular terminal event. And the reason he said so was that um, he added 30 years to 1917, and he came out to 1947. Well, of course, as you know, on November the 29th, 1947, the United Nations passed the famous resolution which granted independence and partition to the nation of Israel. And a few weeks later, in May of 1948, the nation of Israel was established. A nation was born in a day. So that was a, a tremendously significant event in the, in the, um, uh, the, the, the seesaw. The, the, the tilting back of Israel being restored to its rightful place. Now, let me ask you a question. What chapter in the Bible was it that the Christadelphians, beginning in 1848, hung their hat on to show the gradual restoration, the, the gradual reversal tilt of that seesaw back so Israel would finally be restored as the worldwide kingdom of God. What was the chapter? Right. Now, you know, I asked that question in a Bible school, another Bible school, and I, I, I had to pull a tooth to get the answer. Which means that um, the diet, say, that I was raised on, somehow or other got lost in the shuffle. The 37th chapter of Ezekiel, of vision of the dry bones, was the diet that I was a kid was raised on. That there was no doubt that the, the Jews would go back to Palestine. It hadn't happened yet because I was born in 1918. But it would happen because the 37th chapter of Ezekiel said it would. I don't know whether our modern students, teenagers, know, even know it's there. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what they're being taught. But I'll tell you something. If they aren't being taught this, they are missing out on the on the, the faith and conviction which they need to cope with the present evil world. Now, the next thing that the mathematicians did was compute what would happen if 1335 were, were deducted from 1260 number one, and they got a period of 75 years, and if it's deducted from 1290, it was 45 years. So... 
If you add now the 45-year period as well as the 30, this has now, I think, been demonstrated, at least to the satisfaction of myself. In other words, is the theory working? Yes, it's working, because obviously 30 years from 1917, these two fundamentally important dates, um, came to, to, to a, a tremendously important date with respect to the restoration of Israel. Now, if you add 45 years onto that, you come to 1992, which is just about 6,000 years, according to Usher's chronology, from the creation of Adam. So again, we have a convergence. That's why I spent a whole day here talking about the 6,000-year period. I think that's very important. Now, what does it say about 1992 if this chart is correct? It says that Daniel will, will rest, which is, means he'll be in the grave, and stand in his lot at the end of the days. So I conceive that by the time 1992 or thereabouts comes... Uh, the kingdom will have been established to the point where the allocation of the, of, the, of the land that is going to be inherited by the saints will have been accomplished and Daniel will be given uh, and bestowed with the portion that he and the other saints uh, are allotted to. So uh, it looks to me as if the convergence is there and that by 1992 um, all these things will have been accomplished. Now... Um, I, I, I will get back now to the, to the uh, bisection period. We say here the great seven times period of Israel's downtrading is divided in half. If you take 2,520 and you divide it in half, you get 1,260 and 1,260. 1,260 multiplied by 2 is 2,520. Um, now, the Bible in various places... Um, uses different methods to indicate this. It calls it time times and a half, which is time, two times is 720, and a half a time is 180, which is 1260. Time times then a dividing of time, 40 and two months, which is 42 times 30, which is the same figure, or 1260 days. Now, of course, the futurists say that 1260 days is, is a period of three and a half literal years. Whereas the historical interpretations say that 1260 days is on the day for the year principle, and it was the time when the Catholic Church uh, wore out the saints of the Most High and had complete um, ascendancy over them. Now, what happened at the at the uh, halfway period? Well, halfway through, which is in, just about in the middle, not exactly in the middle. It didn't happen in in 657, but. In the West, the great Roman Catholic apostasy really came to the zenith of its uh, blasphemy. As Larry mentioned this morning, uh, Focus, the emperor in Constantinople, bestowed on the papal man. You see, the, by this time, the western section of the Roman Empire had fallen, and there was a vacuum. And the, the pope said, Cardinal Newman, fill that vacuum. He said the, the fall of, of the Roman Empire of the West was the emancipation of the popes. So, the um, focus gave this decree that, that the uh, Bishop of Rome was to be the universal bishop over all Christendom. Now, he started writing. You see, they, ha they had a great theory, brothers and sisters. And the theory was uh, that Peter said to the Master, Here are two swords. 
And Je- what did Jesus say? It is enough. Well, the two swords, according to the papacy, one was the, the sword of the Spirit, which was their doctrinal position to rank, you know, to, to preach the mass, the transubstantiation, the relics, the whole rigmarole of the pagan system. Well, and the other sword of the Spirit was the sword of steel. So if you don't like the, the first sword, we'll see that you like it by the second sword, sword of steel. And this was Roman Catholic theology. I mean, they, they thought they were doing God a favor by using the second sword, the sword of steel, to do in these Albigenses and Huguenots and all these other people who stood up against them. Well, by the time 1260 years elapsed, which brings us down to 1866 to 1870, we come to the year 1870. Now, the 1870 was a very historical year. If you'll read the Christadelphian magazine at that time with Robert Roberts as editor, he was ecstatic because a great sign happened, and that was that the papacy was stripped of its temporal power. Up to this time, they had quite a large chunk of what is now Italy, uh, and, the, and the pope was not only the theological head of it, but he was also the king of it. He had an army, he had coins, he had stamps, um, he had uh, ambassadors, and, he, and it was just like a country. It was a country. It was called the Papal States. Well, in 1870, the Pope lost that. Garibaldi came in and stripped the Pope and put him in the Vatican, a very small piece of, of acreage, uh, where he remains to this day. Now, in 1870 also, you'll remember that another historic event happened, where, on the one hand, the papacy, um, you might say, was, was uh, given a... a a degradation by losing the papal states. But on the other hand, they called an ecumenical council that year, and the Pope put through the doctrine of papal infallibility. In other words, they reached the zenith of blasphemy by saying that when, when the Pope spoke ex cathedra, he was infallible. Everything he said was absolutely infallibly correct. And this modern Pope, this, this fellow who's coming to Canada in September, um, has re-enunciated the doctrine. And when anybody steps out of line, as you know, some of these Catholic priests were getting a little bit... He called them in the room and said, Look, I'm, the, I'm running this thing. You don't like it. Get out. And they quickly uh, came to heel. So, this um, system which came... This great apostasy of the West is the man of sin that Larry was talking about all this week. And they certainly did wear out the saints. Now, this is what the book of Revelation is about. The rise of this guy... The, the great system, which was apostate, call itself Christ, which really was was not in any sense of the word whatsoever, and which wore out the saints by this sword the, uh, of steel. Now, at the same time, a, another great apostasy arose, the apostasy of the East, the Islamic system. Uh, Muhammad flourished beginning about 610. Now, as we told you the other day, uh, his famous flight on this beast uh, that was provided by God for him, where he went from Jerusalem to the third heaven, um, then back again to Jerusalem, and then back to Mecca all in one night, uh, occurred in July 19 of um, 622 A.D. The Muslims in that year began to number. They said nothing, nothing important has happened up to now, so this is going to be year one for us, for the Muslims. Well, it just so happens that 1,335 of their years, which are lunar, comes to 1917. 
And remember, I had this coin the other day. I showed you. This is a very important thing because it's a double convergence. It's a convergence of 2,520 years from the time of Nebuchadnezzar getting the vision of the image on the solar scale, and it's 1,335 lunar years um, on the Muslim system. And the next year, they quit reckoning time by the by this system and reverted to the Western system. So as far as the Islamic system was concerned, the last year of their system was, was in 1917 of our calendar, or 1,335 uh, years of their calendar. And of course, in that year, they lost the city of Jerusalem, which they had held since about 1450. Now, on the solar scale, uh, there was another interesting thing happened, which the Christadelphians were very ecstatic about, and that was that Omar captured Jerusalem in 637 A.D. Omar was, was Muhammad's um, successor after Muhammad died in 632. And one of the first things that the general, this new general Omar did, was march north and capture the city of Jerusalem. Now, 1260, which is half of the 1797, which, of course, is the first Zionist Congress, which was another reason why the, the, um, the um, Christadelphians were ecstatic. Now, have a look at page 19 for a minute. In the middle of the page, we say the, the teeter-totter in reverse. Everybody see that? Teeter-totter in reverse, in the middle of the page. Uh, we say that the program was progressive. Now, a very interesting thing happened, which I've got two minutes I'm going to make it, but anyway, I'll show you this. See, here's 1860, and here we are in 1984. Now, two very interesting things happened. One was that as the um, as the um, papacy declined um, in 1870 and so on, and the papal sign. Which the, which the true believers had been watching for 1260 years, sort of came to a termination, you might say. Just at that same time, the Jewish sign, st- s- sign started to rise like that, and it's still on the rise. So while a papal sign started to decline, and the true believers, I suppose, had their chin down to here, suddenly in the, in the, on the other side of the, of the coin, there was a whole new sign opening up for the believers, and that was this progressive, revela- uh, progressive restoration of the Jewish people. So this little table we have here, 1860, was the first... You might, in Paris, France, they called together the Jews of Europe to see if something couldn't be done for the, the poor Jews in Poland. And this was noted. Then in 1897, the first Zionist Congress was called. By 1917, the Jerusalem was liberated from the oppressing power of the, of the um, Turks. The river Euphrates, as far as Jerusalem, had, was dried up, and the, set, the sixth vial was in place. You see, the, the people 
Can you imagine anybody in those days buying the futurist theory? Why, they just say, you people must be crazy. The thing is unfolding before our eyes. What are you talking about? The whole thing is going to be, be three and a half years, some way down, some future time we don't even know about. By 1947, the state of Israel was established, and, and a few weeks later in 48. And in 1967, the old city of Jerusalem was taken by the armies of Israel, and the temple site reverted back to its rightful owners, namely the Jewish people. Now, this, brothers and sisters, is walking by sight, not by faith. You don't have to have a, a big barrel of faith beside you to draw from in order to look at that table and say that the 37th chapter of Ezekiel is being fulfilled in exact sequence the way it was written down. And a blind man can see it. Now, here's what bothers me. And this will be my swan song. <clears throat> I was at a Bible school. I won't tell you how many, how long ago, because I don't want you to identify where it was or who it was. But anyway, I was sitting around one night on the Tuesday, like we do here after the evening lecture, chewing the fat. And I was, you know me, I was sounding off. I said, our young people are not informed with the right things. So one of the teachers that was teaching the young people took me to task. And he said, as you know, oh, you're wrong there. The young people of today are smarter than ever. Have you ever heard that? You know, that they're, they're the smartest generation that ever came along? Uh, they know computers. We didn't know anything about computers. They know all kinds of things that they see on television about what's happening in, all around the world. They're the smartest generation that ever came along. I said, don't give me that bunk, because they aren't. It's the same as everybody else, except they're not learning the right things. So we had a big contention. So I said, look, if you put our teenagers, just a random group of them, in a room um, and put them down at a desk with a pencil and said, look, I'm going to give you three dates, 1897, 1917, and 1947, and tell us why the Christadelphians think these three dates are important, you'd get the shock of your life. Oh, no, he said, you're, you're off the track. Oh, I said, I, okay, I know, I've never taken a Gallup poll, I don't know, but this is my feeling. The next day, this teacher, unknown to me, um, did that. He had some blank sheets of paper made up with three dates on them, 1897, 1917, 1947. Passed them out to a class. Now, these kids aren't seven, eight, and nine years old. These kids are, are most of them, Sons and daughters of Christadelphians, age 17, 18, 19, 20. So he passed out. He said, all right, put down briefly before we start today's lesson. Why Christadelphians think these three dates are important? So I didn't know anything about this. That night he came to me. And he said, um, I did what you said. So what was that? Remember you were sounding off about this? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I tried it. So he hands me a sheaf of, sheaf of papers. He said, I want you to read these over. So I, uh, I'm not kidding, took the sheet first blank. Nothing on it at all. Blank. Nothing on it at all. Blank. Next one. 1897. The year Dr. Thomas wrote Elpis Israel. Next one. Blank. Next one. 
1897, the year Dr. Thomas wrote Elpis Israel. That means the two of them were sitting side by side. Neither one of them knew what they were talking about. Next one, blank. Next one, 1947, the year the nation of Israel was established. Next one, blank. Next one, blank. Well, look, brothers and sisters, if, our, if you've got a kid, 17 years old, that hasn't got a handle on that table right up in the frontlet of his eyes, how on earth do you ever expect him to know what this thing's all about? And how do you expect him to stand on some firm foundation of facts with which to fight the world? I can't figure this thing out. What's the use of telling a teenager about agape if he doesn't even know there's a God in heaven yet? Fine, tell him about agape. We all have to have that. But brothers and sisters, that's the icing on the cake. After he knows a whole lot of these facts that he should have known from age 10. So my contention is that, as, we, as I spent a lot of time in the first part of this lecture, and that was that the subject of Bible prophecy isn't a question of being smart about a few dates. It has something to it about the faith that we hold. The first thing in the divine order is faith, which is our doctrinal points, and we should know them like the back of our hand. Hope, which is the prophetic understanding and on which we can build a foundation for our faith and conviction. Charity, or agape, is the icing on the cake, which we put into practice, having gotten in place the first two, and not in the reverse order. Thank you.